0: Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bulzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by Tyler Ross, who took his licentiate in canon law at the Catholic University of America, and is currently a practicing canon lawyer for the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. In two earlier podcasts, we discussed the minor orders, considering their place in the broader tradition of the apostolic churches, and Pope Paul VI's motu proprio of 1 January 1973, Ministeria Quaidum, in which he formally suppressed them in the Latin Rite and created two new ministries with the old names of Lector and Acolyte. Today we'll be discussing Pope Francis' motu proprio of 11 January 2021 in which he opened these ministries up to women, where prior to this point, they had been reserved only to men, as had the minor orders these ministries supplanted. Now, before we get started, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and select notifications, and of course, share this content with your friends. Now, uh, welcome Tyler, and um I was wondering, you- can you? What was the name of that motu proprio from Pope Francis? What is that? What is that document?
1: It's called *Spiritus Domini*. Spirit and,
0: of and yeah, so *Spiritus Domini* and and he opens up um, he opens up the ministries, not minor orders, right? The ministries of uh, lector and acolyte to women. So um, so what I I, I think maybe it's, it's good to, um, to kind of start with this question of what, so let's review, right? So the Pope Paul VI in 1973 had, um, had done away with the minor orders in the Latin Rite, And, right. but then he saved two of the names of the minor orders and he, he created Two new ministries, Mm -hmm. which and he was careful to say they're ministries, not minor orders,
1: not minor orders. Yeah.
0: Um, So without getting into the big, um, unbelievably complicated discussion of what actually the distinction between ministry and minor order is, (laughs) um, the the ministries actually here that he created are are each of them is a little bit bigger than what it was when it was a minor order. It's kind of ironic, but yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so do we remember what exactly those, what did those ministries involve when Paul VI uh, created them?
1: Well, um, it it sort of split the subdeacon into two parts is one way to think about it. Yeah. You've got the subdeacon uh, chanting the epistle, which is now um, the second reading. Um, and you've got the subdeacon serving pretty heavily at the altar. So he's, he's kind of one of the main players up at the altar. Um, those would be his two main roles. And, and just again, this is super broad strokes, but uh, the lector is now the one responsible for, um, at least in the liturgy, doing the readings except for the gospel and the acolyte is the one responsible for service at the altar. So that'd be like the basic broad strokes of it. Um, the lector the acolyte does
0: some other stuff too, right? So the yeah. acolyte is, is actually um, the ministry. I'm not talking about the altar boy, right? Right. But the ministry of acolyte as instituted by, by uh, Paul VI. Yep. Also includes the duties. I would say the duties of the sacristan, sacristan.
1: right? Yep. I was about to get into those. So yeah. sort of okay. extra liturgically, you've got the, I was going to start with the lector. So the, the lector is like a catechist as well. Um, um, and then the, the acolyte is sort of like a sacristan. Um, maybe uh, we might, we might call him like an MC, you know, nowadays um, yeah. kind of the guy in charge of the, the, the production of the liturgy. Um
0: so you could sort right. of imagine a scenario in which you had altar servers, right? And 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 to be fair, I mean, altar servers they existed in the church prior to 1970, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Prior to 1962, they existed in the church for a very long time. Yeah. Uh boys serving at the altar. And um, so you can imagine a scenario in which you had these altar boys. And they were governed at the altar, right? They were under the direction of an installed minister, right? Yep. Where there is a sense of um, permanence, right? So once he's installed, this is interesting, according to Paul's sixth thing. Yeah. Once he's installed, the ministry doesn't just go away. It's not like he has to re-up for it every year, whenever the... Whenever they sort of polish up their books, right? They have to kind of decide. Well, okay, who's going to be an altar server this year? Did he go off to college? What are you? That's not what it is.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. It's a permanent ministry. He has a mandatum. Yep. From the bishop, from the bishop. to yep. um, to serve in that capacity. Yep. So. Uh, so this guy. Right. This guy, according to the Vision of Paul the Sixth, could be a layman, but. Um, but he's he's the guy who actually is in charge of the altar service.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's not. I think the, the the point here would be these aren't. And we made this point in a previous video. This is not the guy that you grab right before mass starts because you don't have somebody to read, or or to serve at the altar. Um, this is, you know. Uh, any ministry in the church requires. A lot of discernment, a lot of, um, uh, you know, on a a personal level, it requires discernment. You have to recognize where is uh, grace active in my life? What are my natural virtues? Where is grace building upon that? What what am I good at uh, in the way of like building up the church? Um, And is God calling me to this specific thing? But even more so than that, you're not the only one who has to discern that. It's the bishop who also has to discern that. This is is not just about self-fulfillment. This is about um, the building up of the community of the church.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's actually a big deal, one that we very often overlook. And I would say that, not only do we very often overlook it, I would say that today it's kind of a plague in the church Mm -hmm. that um, people demand to serve in various capacities. They'll show up and and they're like my daughter ought to be able to whatever you know and they they demand we have like women priests right this group called women
2: priests
1: right
0: and they demand that they be that they be admitted to holy orders here's the thing right if we take seriously the concept of vocation a and B, we take seriously the idea that God institutes an authoritative church uh, to to exercise custody over the sacramental life, right? It follows that if you have not been called by that institutional church, you
1: are not called. Yeah, sempliciter.
0: <laughs> right. So yeah. um, the this is, this is the, I mean, this is the thing that just, it blows me away when I see people demanding to serve these capacities. Yeah. Um,
1: Now, to be fair, there, there certainly are scenarios where the individual does receive an authentic calling to do a particular ministry and the, the person or group in authority uh, doesn't recognize that.
0: Yeah, that's Um, true. And, and we could look at some examples of this like for example saint john vianney who had a very difficult road to the priesthood as one example
1: yeah, right yeah right
0: um but there's no question in the hagiography about saint john vianney that he was called by god god yeah. wanted saint john vianney to be a priest
2: yep yeah. yep yeah.
0: saint Catherine of siena right yeah. another example though not a no not an ordained ministry but nonetheless right uh admitted to the religious life um it was god who decided that and yeah. and and her the people in the order didn't didn't recognize it yeah one of the things i love about the way these stories go and there are hundreds of them you know they they o- always what happens is the person becomes a saint and then um and then they and then retroactively they're always so proud to claim this person as their own yeah. even though in in life they were like no yeah they didn't want no it. okay so
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but whatever but the- I think another point that we can make there is that um, when we see the example of the saints, they always do respect the authority of the. That's world. right. There is never a demand, even when the person is experiencing. That's right. Saint John
0: Vianney did not go off and get himself ordained to the priesthood by some yeah. other, right, some other guy, right, right. Um, he didn't like go off to an Orthodox bishop or somebody and yes. say, "Well, can you ordain me? Because my guy won't." Yeah. That's not what happened. Yeah. Um, so and um, so that's that's true. But in those cases, you're talking about particular individuals, whereas in in the case that we're talking about with women's ordination, for example, right? Yeah, you're not called, you the individual are not called because you are a member of this group, which the church has discerned from apostolic times. Do not receive calls from god to this
1: to right. this, order. this particular thing right? yeah
0: and um and so that that's an important thing to to kind of keep to kind of keep in mind now um so the um anyway back to this idea of um uh of the minor orders re- being replaced by these now now not minor orders but ministries. ministries yep uh, and we're saying that they're open, according to Francis, right? He's opened them to, to every to every lay person, right? At yep. some age to be determined by the local bishops conference,
2: yep. right? Yep.
0: And the criteria to be determined by a local bishops conference.
2: Yeah.
0: But they're open to women.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Now, um, I would, objectively, go
2: ahead.
0: would you agree, objectively, this is to do this is a departure from venerable tradition
1: yeah yeah it it is a departure from venerable tradition um, that's a it's an objective fact i think it's just right? objective historical fact um if anyone can find in the history books where women have have um been in minor orders or um in ministries prior to this um well, for long periods of time, throughout the long periods of time, right now we do have the um, the the order of deaconesses, the order of widows, and that kind of thing. But yes. the precise nature of those is so nebulous, um, and they didn't last. We they fade away pretty early on in the church. Some of them
0: remained active in certain regions of the church for a long time,
1: but mm-hmm. um, and uh, they a lot of people, to my research at least, think that those. Uh, groups sort of became the basis for religious women's religious life yeah. that is sort of think for the
0: that. most part that's true yeah yeah for the most part that's true also they trace back to a time when the idea that the priest should touch a woman in situations that would be socially compromising yep was something to be avoided yep. right and um and for this reason they minimize the physical contact between the priest or deacon or bishop. Right. Uh, and the and the person, the, the, the lay person um, receiving ministry, right? Yep. Thus the intervention of the deaconess to do the kind of touching in which uh with that the ritual sort of demands, but which is not as such part of the sacrament. Yeah. Right. So if you kind of imagine this is something it's hard for people to understand. And maybe you could explain this a little bit as a canon lawyer, but but um because you know they're always sort of the, the doctrinal, on the one hand, the dogmatic issue, and on the other hand, the application in canon law of these yeah. important distinctions. And canon law does a good job of sort of clarifying some of those distinctions, I think. But it seems to me, right, that that there are those things which are of the essence of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And in the Latin Rite, we tend to talk about these in terms of the, the matter and the form of the sacrament. Right. And then there are all sorts of ritual embellishments, which though not strictly uh, constitutive of the sacrament, uh, are part of the delivery system. Yeah. Right? So if you want to think about it like, um, the sacraments don't just drop out of the sky. Their activities, their actions performed by human beings and actions take time to perform. Right. And also, they're, they're, they have to be given a context within which their meaning is discernible to the person engaging them.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. So, um, you know, it would be it would be one thing to for the priest to kind of take a piece of bread and some wine and and say, "This is my body, this is my blood," right? Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, there's Eucharist, but that's yeah. not how it's done, and it's never been how it's yeah. been done. It's always right. in the context of the whole. Liturgical action, yep. right? Yep. So now, it's when indeed. we think about baptism and confirmation, and anointing of the sick, which involves yep. they, these things, involve touching bodies. Yep. Um, there's a touching that occurs, which is of the essence of the sacrament, and then there are all kinds of touchings that occur that are not of the essence of the sacrament. Right. So yep. that I, I mean, that's where deaconesses came in in the early in, in the early church right right yeah.
1: and and we hear paul too i forget where exactly but um he talks about traveling with uh with women who i'm gonna poorly paraphrase what he's saying but uh sort of as if they're wives but but as sisters right like it, 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 it he i i, I want to stop first saying prescribes this but um he mentions like traveling, you know, the, the ordained men travel, like specifically traveling with women. Um, but there's no, you know, partnerships among them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it sort of seems like each man sort of takes a woman to be his helpmate there. <laughs> I say, um, and that's kind of like how they did things back then. So it seems that there was some, um, at the time, some kind of like use for specifically women to do things Yeah, um, that would so like what exactly not make sense. They? We
0: don't really know.
1: What it is, we don't know, but we can surmise that whatever it was, it, it doesn't it wouldn't have made sense for a man to do that. Otherwise, why are they specifically saying do it with women? where we need a woman yes. to do it.
0: No, that's true. So it, it this is actually this is an interesting point and an important mm-hmm. one. And yep. that is that these roles exercised by women in the primitive church and the early church are different from those exercised by men. Yeah. Uh, And so it's not, even the discussion of of deaconess, which isn't really a discussion we're having right now, but even the discussion of deaconess, right, is not the discussion of ordaining women to the diaconate. Right. And and this is one of the things that just escapes the consciousness of most people, but it's true. They're, they're, they are not the same ministry, and there's no credible scholarship that, 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 that I'm aware of that demonstrates anything to the contrary. All the scholarship yep. uh, points to there being completely different ministries. That yep. said, it does seem to be the case that some of these ministries involving women in the early church did put them in the, in the sanctuary of the church. And um, so that's an an interesting part of the problem, right? Because Mm -hmm. one of the objections that we might raise to opening the ministries of lector and acolyte to women is that it departs from the tradition of not having women minister in the sanctuary during the liturgy. Um, However, in the primitive church, it seems that they did in some way if, if in no other case that they they kind of stood there like in like in choir or something right yeah um but
1: yeah so that then, might like, be
0: what, a, that might be a response a person could make right
1: it, yeah it could be and and there's so much gray area here that like you know what did the liturgies look like where were they um what what did the women you know assuming that they were in the sanctuary which we don't know. What did they do? It's just so much gray area. Yeah. Um, so that what you're saying is one interesting part of the story. The other interesting part of the story is um, we do have the very clear and universal practice of um, that if it did happen, fading away.
0: It right. So it, anyway, that hasn't been part of the that has not been part of the Latin right. At all. I mean the Latin Rite as such, right? Never had yeah. that. So right. um
1: Yeah. Yeah. So because the Latin Rite didn't really become the Latin Rite until I don't know what Gregory the Great.
0: Yeah, somewhere <laughs> Maybe around there.
1: A hundred years before that or so.
0: Right. Which is right. in
1: the 500s?
0: Yeah, so it's it's um it's just not part of this tradition. And the yeah. question is, does that mean anything? And this is where so Francis himself points out right that in his letter to Ladaria he points out that this that the reservation of these ministries to to men only is is venerable tradition he does actually yeah. say that
1: he does say that yeah yeah what is the he actually had an interesting uh, interesting language he used um, i got the document pulled up here do, do, do
0: veneranda or something right isn't that what he's yeah
1: yeah he had the the gerundive um
0: So, how do you understand that
1: venera uh yeah not without reason saint paul the sixth refers to a venerabilis tradition not a veneranda tradition so I, i think what he's saying there is and actually the english translation leaves the those two words in the latin um it is here first to it as a venerable tradition, mm-hmm. not a, a veneranda tradition, which would be like a, a venerated tradition. Yeah.
0: Um, yes. So this is very interesting as far as distinction goes. And it's a, and it's a really important one. Um, I don't think it's a I don't think this distinction gets Francis out of my own view. So I don't think this tradition gets Francis out of any critique, but it's an yeah. important distinction. Okay, so, so in the, the case of a venerable tradition, right? We're saying it is, um, it's to be given the prejudice of favor. Yep. What I would say, right? It's yep. to be given the prejudice it. of favor because yeah. of its antiquity.
1: Yeah. Right. Such that um, to depart from it requires <laughs> it would, justification It would require justification. Yeah. And, and I was going to say at the risk of maybe being a little too controversial, like to, to um, set the stage here, right? Like if you're walking around, you know, the, you know, the ancient world or whatever, or the, you know, 700s AD. And um, all you know is that, you know, doing things X way is the venerable tradition. And, and you're walking around and, and then you see this one Bishop uh, doing something differently, you would probably be a little skeptical of, of that situation. Yeah. Um, you, you shouldn't write him off. Right. Cause maybe he's got reasons. Um, but like for something, for, for a person to go against a venerable tradition um, you have to be really careful in doing that. Not to say it can't be done, obviously, because you can't.
0: It requires requires justification. And I would say strong justification. Yeah. All right. So whereas a venerated tradition or a tradition which is the subject of veneration, I would say there you're talking about the kind of thing which which as part of the constant practice of the church. How can I put this? Um, I would say that. Yeah, here's what I would say. I would say that it's a case in which the discipline of the church is reflective of, of dogma.
1: Yeah. Lex Rondi, Lex credendi, in a sort right. of a Lex vivendi, right. I guess would be a better thing to put. Here. So, um,
0: so what would be an example of that? Right. What would be an example of that? Um,
1: well, I think a good example of that is actually the, what we were just talking about Um. um the different rites that surround the sacraments of the church right like why have this big long you know (laughs) um, in some places three hour long mass like in Egypt for example or even like an hour and a half right Uh, however long it is um, for something that can be accomplished in two minutes you know Um, it's well, for a lot of reasons, I think like if somebody if somebody suggested
0: but, just dispensing with the whole liturgical action,
1: yeah, because not, it's not ontologically necessary.
0: strictly necessary, so
1: yep yep.
2: just get rid of it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, you would have a conniption. yeah, right? I mean like you know.
1: yeah. Or another example too is um, I, I kind of see the rosary as falling into this category a little bit. Um, the rosary isn't dogmatic. Right. It's, yeah. Not, um,
0: I mean, like, it's not like um, we didn't get the rosary. Um, we didn't get the rosary from the hands of the apostles. Yeah. Now some will say, of course, it came from the Virgin Mary, right? Giving it to Saint Dominic. Right. Whatever. I mean, like, maybe I don't know. I'm, that's kind of hagiography. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's factual historically or not. I know people. Yeah. There will be people who write me off for. For reserving judgment on that matter, but let's just say. Your point, okay, is um, this is a custom that the rosary is a thing that the church started to do in the Middle Ages. So it's not dogmatic in the sense that it, it, the church can't exist without it. Is really the point, right? But um, but you would say it's venerated tradition. What in the sense that the church can't suppress the rosary or something, right?
1: Yeah, right. Would like for the. Um... Yeah, certainly, the, I don't think the church would ever suppress the rosary, but it would be one of those things where if a person said, um, like I just don't see the value in it, and I'm not, okay. I just don't see a particular reason to do it, we would kind of like question you know, again, be skeptical. Well, we I would guess. say
0: that the person needs to be catechized,
1: yeah. Um, it's, it's so ingrained in the life of the church. That to, to ignore it or to spurn it or to, you know, whatever else would kind of be in some way, I don't want to say a full on like departure of the faith, but there's something defective there.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I think maybe. I think, I mean, I agree with, I agree with what you're saying, basically. I'm not sure that that quite takes us to where we want to go with, with venerated tradition yeah I think the concept of venerated tradition is a very strong concept in the sense that um, I mean I guess what I'm saying what I'm suggesting is that sets the bar so high it's hard to it's hard to see how many things might ever cross it um, Dispensing with a Eucharistic liturgy would be one now you yeah. could so you you know you would argue right that, the particular way in which the Eucharistic liturgy is celebrated involves, uh, a, you know, a wide range of activities that have developed over time and, and can be changed, right? So, so basically, you might have a problem with the Novus Ordo. Many people are very critical of it, especially since it seems to have been devised in, you know, in a, in a boardroom somewhere. Right. Um, I mean, it was it was there was a major criticism of the Novus Ordo, right? Is that it's it what, it was a radical reworking of the liturgy rather than a kind of tweaking of what was already there. Nonetheless, it's the case, right, that the the um, the liturgy has been revised in little ways, yeah, many many times long before the Novus Ordo, right. So, for example, the last the last time for the extraordinary form, right, was was 1962, just before the council. Right. Before that, it was what 1950. I don't remember. 1958,
1: 55. I think 58, and then to 45. There were a few. Yeah. So so it
0: was revised repeatedly, right? Yeah. And um, and so a person could argue that the various ways in which we do things in the liturgy are venerable traditions not venerated okay yeah whereas the venerable tradition would be that there is a liturgy yep that makes sense
2: yep
0: like that's the thing where i can't imagine i can't imagine how you could justify dispensing with the liturgy itself even though the, the way we talk about what's required for the validity of the sacrament is actually the words of institution. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that would be an example of, a, of, of I think, a venerated, a venerated um, tradition.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I could probably think of some other examples. My point is, though, that the bar, that bar is really high. Yeah. And here's the thing. I don't think that the concept of venerable tradition is the concept of a thing that we can change just because we feel like we want to. All right. Um, so I think you and I hold a similar view on, on the concept of venerable tradition. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think uh, from our discussions in the past, um, I, I'll tell my view is this. Venerable tradition is the kind of thing that binds us To the church as something bigger than ourselves, to the church as something something through which we receive the faith, right, through which we receive the gospel and are nurtured in it. The very idea that you can't just up and change your right, you can't just decide tomorrow you're going to be Eastern, you're going to be like Byzantine right. Yeah. Right? You can't do that.
1: Yeah. I mean you can um, go to a Byzantine church, but actually that doesn't make you Byzantine.
0: Yeah. So, um so that's a big deal. That that this is telling us, right, that venerable tradition, that's thought these are the trappings that that bind us to the church. This is the way the church communicates the gospel. Yeah. And for this reason we if we if we're going to change any element of that, then uh, the burden of proof is on us to justify why that's necessary to do. Yeah. Right? So it's not that we're saying it can't be done under any conditions. Right. But that we have to justify why it's necessary to change what has been done. And it has to be a strong justification.
1: Right. Right. For more than um, more than I want to say like public, mm, how the public would view it kind of reasons. Yeah. So that's the situation in which we find ourselves with this motu proprio, I think, is um, we're, we're having to acknowledge a, a venerable tradition and assess what that, what it means for a thing to be a venerable tradition, what are the implications of that. Um, and then look at the reasons that are given for why the venerable tradition is being overcome.
0: Yeah, so um, <clears throat> So the question then is are they good enough reasons? Now Francis gives his reasons, right? And I guess the, I guess the debate really is whether those reasons are sufficient to justify the, the move.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, he gives sort of, uh, I've, I've sort of narrowed it down to three overarching reasons. Um, one of, so the, the first one that I think that he brings up is that, uh, these are not minor orders anymore, right? He's recognizing yeah. the change that Paul the sixth did. Um, and therefore they're not really seen as connected in any way to the major orders. Um, they're, if they're not orders, they're not connected. It's just, Different roles that that need to be fulfilled yeah. in the uh, playing out of the liturgy. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that he notices, and I, of course, I think he's right in this: that it's not ontologically impossible that the roles uh, be given only to men, right? That, or it's not ontologically impossible that the roles be given to women. I should say um, that this is a this is a possible thing. Um, so he's by those two things, he's sort of opening the doors and then um, he needs one more reason why he can step through the doorway, right? So he's opened the door. Now, are we gonna take the step? And then he takes the step um, and this at, at the risk of uh, sort of um, underselling his reason in my summary, I say, take this sort of with a, a, a grain of salt. If you wanna know his full reason, read the document. Um, on the vatican website um but he his his main reason is that he wants to give uh recognition to the workings of grace in more than just men right he he recognizes um that like there are these similar types of charisms um in women that exist in men and he wants to open the door and Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit right. is going to do.
0: So, I'm not prepared to deny the truth of any of those things. Yeah. Um, my my, I guess my question is just whether that is sufficient justification to change venerable tradition. Yeah. And here's where I think um, Francis and I prudentially might part ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And that would be. Um, I would say again I would say that if you're gonna if you're gonna depart from venerable tradition you've got to get a you have to give a very good reason yeah now it's not my judgment to make I guess right I'm not the guy who gets to make that call but right. but um
1: I mean you can make the judgment if I were it making my judgment anything. would
0: be that's not a good enough reason yeah true though those state those statements may be yeah i I, I don't because it seems to me there's a lot more going on here, right? The very way that we celebrate the liturgy, uh, the, the historical connection between these ministries and the minor orders, and the historical connection between the minor orders and the major orders, mm-hmm. uh, all provide a very powerful justification for retaining the venerable tradition. Yeah while the burden of proof is on the person who wishes to change venerable tradition not the person who wishes to retain it
2: yeah no uh, i think that's right a, that's so while, while
0: while venerable tradition has lots of things it can say in its defense those things it can say in its defense are arguably more powerful as a justification than the reasons advanced to change venerable tradition
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: that to me that's a losing argument
1: yeah so um i i would say a much stronger case for me can be made that uh the reasons he gives are not sufficient um if we're talking about the minor orders so if, if Paul, um, if right, like Ministeria quietom had never happened and we still had the minor orders and Pope um, Francis wanted to open those up. Um, then I would say, yeah, like if we have a soup the venerable tradition is, um, <laughs> you know, even more venerable, you know, yeah. at that point. Um, but it's, I, I, I do think it's an easier case to make um, it's it's easier to overcome the tradition when the when really the tradition is has sort of already been overcome. You know what I mean? Like
0: yeah, right.
1: It, it's it's only the ministries of Lecter and acolyte are only analogous to the minor orders. Um, they're not the same thing, and so right. A, so those nice, two like, there those isn't,
0: ministries are of themselves novel.
1: Yes, that's what I was about and, to say. Like, basically, then so what's they're... the
0: big what's the big deal? Does that right? That I mean, that's a I can see why a person might see that as a persuasive argument.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to be the first one to say, like, I think we should just not have the ministries and go back to the minor orders because that seems to be what has worked for um, you know centuries. Changing and centuries that in and the first
0: place was maybe the thing that was right that required more justification than it received.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and even then, again, when we talked about this in a in a prior podcast as well, that um, I can totally understand sort of reordering what specific minor orders do what roles, um, because that's happened, you know, in, in all the different rites of the church, not just the Latin rite, um, over the centuries. Um, but it's another thing to to do away with the minor orders as such. Yeah. So I think once you make the move of um, suppressing or abolishing the minor orders as such um, the you've kind of done half of the work of opening the door like you've unlocked the door now <laughs> you've unlocked the door now it just needs to be opened and then you got to step through it but once you get the door unlocked game over right you've, yeah. you've gotten through the door
0: So look I um... We'll we'll wrap this up here uh, pretty shortly, but um, I think a lot of people are very concerned that this is sort of creeping toward the ordination of women to the diaconate and eventually the priesthood and so forth. Yeah. Um, I I understand the base of that that concern.
1: Um, I don't know. It's a slippery slope argument. Yeah, a slippery slope argument. But I don't, uh, you know, on a... (laughs) on a rhetorical level for me that doesn't hold a whole lot of weight um you know if you do this and that means that x y and z bad actually bad thing is going to happen um and to which i'll just respond well i mean maybe but that doesn't make this thing a bad thing just because well, we just
0: got finished saying that we just got finished saying that they're not minor orders yeah right so um so it it, it really doesn't follow that from that position you can get to a demand that that women be that women be ordained deacons right. But I would say I would ask this question at a practical level for us um, where does this leave us? I mean what as far as your experience of liturgy um, in your experience of the covenant life of the church?
1: Yeah where is it as leave practicing
0: us? Catholic today.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And it actually brings me to a point that I wanted to make um, earlier um, that I actually think practically speaking, where does this leave us? I don't think it's going to make much of a difference Um, because again, as we talked about in a prior podcast, in the last one, um, the existence of these ministries does not show up anywhere in my experience and your experience, at least. Um, I don't know anyone, yeah. Like outside of seminaries, right? Outside of seminaries, and even then it's it's super transitional. And you know, maybe they'll do it at mass when they come back and do a a pastoral summer or something, but they you know, you don't you hardly ever see that. Um, so practically speaking, it's not really to me probably not gonna make that much of a difference. Um, but what's interesting is that he actually let me pull this part back up. There was another part where he did say. Um he, he's basically reaffirming the ministries as ministries, right? Like the, we spent a lot of time last episode talking about the fact that um this motu proprio by Paul VI has not been realized. Yeah, that's right. It has been in the sense that um we he's abolished the minor orders, but in the sense that, like, do we actually have Lectors and acolytes in the normal life of the church no we don't
0: yeah um, but like so so and uh, so this is I,
1: I interpret this as francis like re-upping paul the sixth on this you yeah. know like it's it's maybe he didn't intend this maybe he did i don't know um but he's kind of saying
0: we need to do still better than wait we for
1: me doing. like i i intend on this still being a thing in the yeah. normal life of the church. I mean, look,
0: it's hard, to, it's hard to argue with the idea that things should be better than they've been.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right? Um,
1: yep. And it
0: probably would be the case that our, our experience of the covenant of life of the church would be improved if we really had people in these ministries. That's a separate question, really, in my mind from whether they should be open to women, but that there should be such ministries as opposed to what we're doing now in, in virtually every place, right? Uh, yeah. Which is just having, um, you know, having people do this as sort of a, um, what, on sort of an ad hoc basis, right?
1: Yeah, or at best, you're a, you are a stable, trained by the priest, altar server, and reader. I mean, at best, but you're still not a lector or an acolyte. You're not you're not really doing the thing that the church envisions you doing
0: yeah which is a pretty high thing I mean it's yeah. uh right so so yeah so maybe there's a maybe the silver lining in the whole thing right if you're critical of the motu proprio you might say well at least you know it re- it draws our attention back to these ministries as serious things rather than just, you know, ad hoc uh, you right. know, activities done by by children right. and teenagers, and uh, you know, and a few committed adults here and there. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and and there's so much, you know, in um, surrounding the implementation of the Second Vatican Council that really there's a, there's a lot of things where how do I want to put this. They're there in the writing, in, in the documents, and in the um, in the commentaries on the documents um, that outline sort of the vision going forward, um, but that once we got to the actual implementation of things, just totally disregarded a lot. And I've had plenty of conversations myself where i like point to a document, or some authoritative thing about the second Vatican council or the things immediately following the second Vatican council, um, like this motu proprio, um, where it says like, well, this is kind of what, you know, like the spirit of Vatican II is like actually this, not what we see. And people all the time will just say something like, well, I mean, that's just not how we do it. (laughs) That's just not how we implemented that. Um, and, and I yeah, I right. see the silver lining in this as Francis sort of vindicating um, the people who will say, Well, I get that we haven't implemented it. And I'm I want to implement it, <laughs> you know. I, I want to follow this thing that that the church is giving me, not what seems to be the aberration of it.
0: Yeah. So so my my last thought on this, right, is that that's good. That's good, but, but I would still maintain that. even though I think the the response is strong to say these these ministries are themselves novel, they mm. aren't the minor orders, right? Yeah. I think that's a that's a strong response to the criticism that you're violating venerable tradition. Yeah. However, I don't think it quite gets us where he wants it to get us because. The truth of the matter is that the minor or that those particular ministries are historically linked to the minor orders that they supplanted. Yeah, and and it is a venerable tradition that those minor orders were right were occupied by men.
1: Right, for the reason
0: of their connection to the to
1: the major orders. To the major orders, right? As as we have said before the all of the various roles of the minor orders are properly speaking responsibilities of the deacon as an ordained you know man in in holy orders and we still have to preserve that connection in some way because um the roles of of the minor orders were adapted to the ministries right so we didn't um add new roles for the ministries that weren't there in the minor orders same same roles which have the same connection to the role of the deacon right um so there is still this sort of um like i i, w- I would push for this connection albeit a different kind of connection with the diaconate and i would i would argue actually that to call them ministries and and now to open it up to women um, clouds that connection, right, between these roles and the diaconate. Um. So uh, yeah, so I, I think that's sort of a maybe a fittingness argument to be made. Yeah, like, I don't want to I don't want to lose the connection between the roles that these people are performing, and and the idea that um, these roles are actually proper. To the deacons specifically, right? But historically yeah. they've been enumerated and given to lay people.
0: Yeah. So and and that's exactly the point of departure. Act, you know, so this is a good place to wrap things up because that mm. that's the point of departure, and we, we won't be able to discuss it today. But um maybe in some future podcast, but we don't have another one planned immediately for this series. The position that Francis articulates in the Motu proprio is that. These functions are uh, actually proper to the priesthood of all the faithful. yeah, not the sacerdotal priesthood. yeah. And um, And you're maintaining the position that indeed these functions flow from the diaconate, which is a major order. Those are two those are two um, irreconcilable positions, it seems to me. Yeah. And uh, Francis's statement here, is not a definitive teaching it's an opinion that he gives to justify his action yeah and his action is like you know motu proprio. it's very much like you know in american politics uh an executive order a presidential order right um it's it's like that as far as the law is concerned he just declares this is how we're going to do it now and You know, he offers some justification, some theological justification for it. That theological justification is not presented here as definitive or infallible. It doesn't foreclose uh, discussion, right? So he could be, his argument may not stand the test of time.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of things of late have not stood the test of time. So yeah. Who knows? so
0: that's where we'll, we'll wrap it up I think yeah. so we, you know we, there's a point of departure here right do these do these functions actually belong to the faithful as such or do they belong to uh, the deacon right it may be the case that the faithful can do these things but that doesn't necessarily mean that the duty of doing it is theirs yeah and uh, and so that, that's where I think that's where I think the conversation goes yep. in the future yep Um.
2: Agreed. all right so
0: thanks for coming thanks for coming mr ross
2: yep thank you
0: and uh, it's a good conversation great yeah all right we'll have you back again for for some for something else all right yeah, now for you in the audience um make sure you like the video and subscribe and select notifications share the content all right um signing off thanks a lot and god bless the audience